Hello, hello. Welcome to our Jumbo Stem podcast. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Devyam Goel. At Intelisive this year, he won the third award of $1,000 in the category of microbiology. A little bit of a background story. Although we were in the same category, we haven't met in person. But the cool thing is that online on the Drop the Stem server, um, you can join if you're listening, we found out that both of our works targeted pseudomonas infections. So in his project, he used microtiter assays and in-lab developed simulated anatomic lung model to determine the effectiveness of bacteriophage therapy as a preventative measure against polymicrobial biofilms in cystic fibrosis patients. So welcome, Debian, to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's really, I've, I've been looking at the previous episodes and it's really interesting to hear such a deep, you know, discussion with all sorts of kids my age who are really interested in science. Oh, thank you for saying that. I'm real thrilled to have this conversation because you've also worked on that dangerous bacterial villain, which you're going to expand on and what obstacles its infections represent. So we're going to just, you know, dive deep in and I'm interested what propelled you to move into the field of microbiology. Uh, well, that's an interesting question because I've always had an interest in science as a broad field, but I somehow didn't feel like that much of, I guess, a personal motivation to explore fields such as chemistry and physics. That's, that's just me personally, because I felt like while those fields have so much more to offer as we keep researching in them, I just keep hearing these stories about dangerous infections and how hundreds of thousands of people worldwide are suffering from, you know, diseases caused by microorganisms. So that kind of really motivated me to think about the fact that maybe we need to spend more time working on things that we need to solve for people around the world who, you know, die from these infectious diseases on a daily basis. Yes, absolutely. Like these little creatures cannot be seen with the naked eye, but they truly affect um, our daily lives all the way, of course, from agriculture to creating uh, multi-drug resistant infections. So they are prevalent in almost every corner. You've targeted such a crucial problem today because the mortality rates when we are talking about pseudomonas organosa infections can go up to 70%. And you work with bacteriophages as a clinical treatment method in your study. So could you expand on what you've been doing and how that was related to your project, which you presented at Intel? Sure. Yeah. So what I noticed was um, there's, I was, uh, you know, what, what really got me interested in uh, the field of microbiology, aside from like the motivation of working with diseases, was um, the idea of phages itself. Because, you know, I actually found a picture of a bacteriophage on Google Images once, just like this was a while ago, and it lo- it looks very like robotic, and it looks almost like a spider. So I was like, wow, yeah. this, this, is, this is a virus, so well, let's look more into this. And then I found out that bacteriophages have been used to treat infections in the past. So I was like, well, this seems like a perfect you know starting point. So what I did was I kept reading more and more on like phage therapy and research papers that deal with phage therapy, and I noticed some gaps. I noticed the fact that a lot of the papers kind of um, were one-dimensional, and they like ignored sort of different aspects of infections that are more clinically relevant, such as a biofilm. And a biofilm is basically, you know, when bacteria sort of communicate with each other through quorum sensing, Yes. and then they start to excrete polysaccharides, and it's a perfect, you know, adaptation to avoid both the body's immune system and antibiotics. So I wanted to test to see how 
you know, bacteriophages would deal with this increasingly difficult and more dangerous form of an infection, which is the biofilm. And then I noticed that um, cystic fibrosis patients are notorious for suffering from biofilms. And it's not just the pseudomonas. The pseudomonas is what opens it up. And any bacteria such as, I think Bacillus aeris is one, I'm not quite sure, but um, definitely MRSA, which is another bacteria I work with. So these two bacteria basically cooperate with each other to make it a really horrible time for the cystic fibrosis patients. And antibiotics are barely effective and your own immune system doesn't really do much. So that's why I really wanted to see if bacteriophages could do anything with this. Absolutely. Biofilm is so prevalent, covers the CF lung, and in this case, um, due to the current sensing mechanism you just mentioned, uh, teamwork is not the ideal dream work in this case. So I know that you've kind of expanded on how different treatment methods, bacteriophages, have an effect on biofilm formation. So what did you target in your study in terms of um, that formation? Like what I did was I basically spread out so many different situations. What I did was I broke the biofilms down from just single um, organism biofilms with each of the three organisms I used. So I used two different forms of the Pseudomonas and one form of the MRSA. Um, the MRSA was a patient isolate from a cystic fibrosis patient and one of the pseudos was as well. And then the third pseudo was a lab strain. So I did, I grew biofilms that had just one organism, and then I grew biofilms that combined two at a time, and then I also grew biofilms that had all three. So I had like several different biofilms, and then I treated some of the biofilms with antibiotics, some of the biofilms with just phage, and then some of the biofilms with bacteriophage and antibiotics. And then I sort of stat bombed it to see if there were any relationships and if we could like draw any conclusions. And that was the microtiter plate assay, so that was like the first part. What I actually found from that study was that there's actually cases where phages can increase biofilm growth, which is kind of scary because it's never really been explored before. Or the fact that, you know, when you have bacteriophages that are interacting with bacteria, these are both biological organisms that, for lack of a better term, or maybe this is what it is, they have like a mind of their own. Sometimes that can go wrong, and that's what I sort of saw in the microtiter part of my study is phages were actually increasing the biofilm formation. That's really interesting because what I've been reading previously about bacteriophage therapy is that they can, you know, be very specific to the bacterial host in order to avoid targeting healthy commensal microbiota or they can be self-controlling in terms of their dose. But it's really interesting that you've targeted that part that it can actually increase biofilm formation, which is, um, of course, a major concern. And I know that you've also implemented simulated anatomic models. What was the role of that in your experimental settings? Sure. So what I, I like going back to the what I mentioned about when, uh, when I was first getting into phage therapy, I noticed a lot of discrepancies. Uh, one of the things I noticed was that basically all of the research that there's a limited amount of research that's on biofilms and phage. So when you go into that um, small microcosm of research, they're all, again, very similar in the form that they grew biofilms on like simple you know, geometric shapes, such as like slides. And we all know that the inside of our lung is not a simple geometric shape, like a slide. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to replicate that abstract sort of, you know, cavern-like structure that our lung has. So what I was actually uh, lucky enough to find and obtain were um, some MRI scans of a child who had cystic fibrosis, um, his lungs. 
So mm-hmm. I took those MRI scans and then I just fed them into a 3D printer. And I would like to preface, I know nothing about computer technology. So the fact that it, the program was simple enough to use where you just feed the scan into the 3D printer and it prints these perfect replicas of actual lungs of cystic fibrosis. So what I did, and this is made out of plastic, of course, it's not like an actual <laughs> lung that would be insane. Yeah. So, but uh, the plastic I used was um, the same plastic that they use for like catheters. So it's been shown to be conducive towards biological growth. So mm-hmm. yeah, once I had those lungs, I basically grew artificial biofilms inside the lungs again and then treated them with phage. Wow, it sounds so cool. Yeah, really that you not only took kind of a one perspective um, target to this problem, but you've um, created this essay to truly replicate the real life situation or the scenario of uh, when that infection takes place and how the interaction can be observed. Well, you won third award in microbiology at the world's largest scientific championship, so congratulations to you. Thank you. I'm sure that you have future plans in terms of the project, so can you expand what's your hope with the project in terms of those future applications? Yeah, sure. So uh, the first thing is obviously, the like I said, the first half of my study showed that uh, phages can sometimes increase growth and like it was funny when I was explaining that to the judges in micro at ISIS they kind of were half of them were just like there's, there's no way he, he messed up and then the other half were like eh, I, I but maybe this is new so uh-huh. I'm also like shocked because it hasn't really been heard of before in, in sort of like a clinical setting or laboratory setting so the first thing I want to do and what I'm doing actually right now kind of is like going back and really looking closely at my procedure to make sure that there's no errors because I repeated that part of the project 16 times and I got the same results. So I'm pretty confident that it was an experimental error, but I still want to go back into my procedure and make sure that it wasn't something that I messed up on. And then once I've cleared that out, which I almost have, I want to go deeper into it and see why phages are causing this to increase. So that's the first thing. Mm. And then the next thing is kind of more of like a broad thing. It's, it's something that everyone who's ever worked with phage as a treatment method kind of dreams of. The main thing is that you, you, you can't really treat internal infections with phages yet because once phages enter your body, your own immune system recognizes them as a foreign invader. So your own immune system kills a phage. We need to find a way to sort of mask the phage from your immune system so they can reach the infection that they're supposed to target. First of all, your first observation was also a pioneering study in the field of microbiology, but I think you're going to succeed in kind of uh, neutralizing that bacteriophage in order to treat those infections because um, there are a lot of initiatives from the World Health Organization and uh, other societies as well to find preventative ways how to target multidrug-resistant infections as well. So I'm really interested to see how your project is going to develop in the future. And what you've just said, that you wanted to back up your results and do more experiments to prove its credibility is that you've done it again and I was just reminded of the Roman proverb I hope it's the correct translation but that repetition is the mother of knowledge so you are definitely following that yeah I'm interested could you share some of your most memorable moments at ISAF this year and I know you competed last year too so if you want to add that to to that compilation that would be great too sure yeah I mean so I, I can give like a little two-part. So like last year I was uh, new 
you know, it was the first time ever. And that's like a different experience than going again, because this time you come in and the shock factor is a little reduced. So you can focus a little more on the task yeah. at hand. Like when you come in for the first time, the main advice and, you know, like tips I would want to give to anyone is just, of course, the cliche, you know, enjoy yourself because it, 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 it is an incredible experience that, you know, only a small, small percentage of students around the world will get to experience. So the fact that you have merited enough, you know, recognition to make it this far means that you have something to be proud of and that you should go and really look at the people, the other 1,800 finalists that are there, even the observers, and, you know, talk to them, learn about what they're doing because you know, collaboration is, is key to science and there's no way to get around that. And that's sort of like the cliche, you know, it doesn't matter if you win or not kind of a thing, but you should definitely learn. And then as for judging, the main thing I would say is just know your stuff. Um, if a judge finds a discrepancy or an issue in your board, never defend it. Never like try to go against the judge. Always take advice from them because let's be honest, you're a really smart kid who's you know coming in and has all this research but that person is a phd who's been doing this for like 20 years right yeah. so always try to learn from the judges while you're presenting mm, humility is key and that openness to admit if you've done something wrong if something is not clear and to ask upon it you know it was actually my first time entering intel and my last in hungary we have the system that you can enter only once in your life so it's truly literally a once in a lifetime opportunity yeah. so i had to take a crash course on at intel and uh, one of the things that was mentioned in one of the panels that you got to prepare an elevator speech did you have one of those Oh uh, yeah. So it's funny what we're told at least like what my mentor, my mentor is actually my dad. Oh really? He tells me, yeah. He tells me that I need to have a one minute, a five minute, and then also a 10 minute version. So that's kind of what I do is because, um, the judges that I set are very dynamic and that they all are people, individuals. So they all have different personalities and how they want to go about things. So I'm sure you're familiar with this, you experienced this as well, is that some of them will come and they'll just start asking you questions and then others will be yeah. like, give me an elevator or just like start presenting. So what I like to do personally, and I don't know if this is the most effective strategy or not, but what I like to do is when a judge comes, I kind of like to ask them like, hey, would you like more of a one minute, a five minute, a 10 minute, would you like to start with some questions? So that automatically uh, oh. gives them the authority and sort of like the charge, the direction they would like to take it in. And then we can be more clear if they were like, okay, sure, go ahead with your five minute. Then after my five minute is done, then they can tell me, oh, can you expand on this? Or I have questions, stuff like that. So I think if you just kind of hand over the judge, the direction, then it makes them more comfortable because we, we should be able to like describe our project in any capacity. So it's, it's better to give them sort of the direction so that they can decide what to do with it. That's really smart. So you keep the options open and the judge actually has the opportunity to choose from what you've offered. Sometimes I feel like once you meet a judge, you only have 15 minutes. So even if you have like excellent interpersonal skills, it's kind of hard to determine what that judge expects from you. And one of the advice I've also had that it should be a conversation, not just, of course, a one-sided presentation for yeah, sure. Exactly. 
and that just really comes back to to what you've said as a tip and if anyone's listening and entering next year I think it's going to be such a valuable advice just to you know navigate um, how the judge wants to hear your presentation as you just said it's all about collaboration and getting to know new people and I'm sure you've had friends from last year who you could meet up with this year as well yeah yeah it's it's really funny how it's ISEF is one of those unique experiences where it's it doesn't like all I guess all social like boundaries that you know kids our age artificially set up they kind of collapse like they should and everyone is already so welcoming it's it, it's kind of insane actually just how friendly people can be like such a diverse group of people just how friendly they can just genuinely be and it's that's it's really nice because these friendships that you make actually do last unlike some other friendships that you might be making at like events so it's really nice because you know you never know um <laughs> like 20 years down the road if you're at one university doing research and one of the people you've kept in touch with from ISIF is at another university and then they turn, become a co-author on your paper or they have like the exact thing that you're missing or they have the exact skill set that you need to complete your project it's just a really easy and really beneficial and rewarding way to you know continue down the path of research yes they are so valuable relationships internet has both it's bad and good size but the fact that you can still keep in touch with those people even if you are a few continents away from each other is, is such a valuable gift and you never know who's gonna be on your research paper in a few years yeah exactly <laughs> The thing is that, of course, we present our projects and get to know other people, but the, the beautiful thing is that you not only get to know their research, but more about themselves. So that's why there's a section called getting to know the person beyond the project board. So related yeah. to conducting scientific experiments, what were some of the obstacles you faced and how did you overcome them? Simple answer is there were quite a few and it's inevitable when you're doing research. Uh, you know, some, sometimes things go wrong. Like when you're working in a lab, sometimes people throw away your stuff and, you know, you need the stuff, simple stuff like that. You know, someone changes the temperature in the incubator and all your bacteria die. Oh, like that's that. my nightmare. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, was, it was fun. No, but like the main obstacle, I guess, that I faced was um, uh, where I live, there's a... Um, decent-sized research university called the University of Utah. It's like a public state school, but they have um, pretty nice research facilities, and I live just 15 minutes away, and that's actually where my dad works as faculty, so I, I had experience like doing research there in the past, so when I approached them with this project, they, they told me that I couldn't work there because the, the Pseudomonas and the MRSA that I wanted to work with were BSL level 2, so biosafety level, which is basically a range of 1 to 4 and a categorization of how dangerous the bacteria are. So they were 2. And um, the University of Utah has a policy that minors and under 18 uh, uh, children basically cannot work with anything above BSL 1. So initially, it seemed like I couldn't do my project at all. But um, I kind of dug around, and the director of my fair and the coordinators there actually set me up in contact with another fair in the state that I live with, another fair that feeds into ISIF. And that fair, the Ritchie Fair from Weaver State University, which is a university that's about an hour away from me, they uh, were really, really happy to help me. So what they did was they set me up in a lab at Weaver State University. So, um, and Weaver State University has no such guidelines. I had to just sign a bunch of papers that, made, that assured them that 
I knew what I was doing and, you know, I would keep all the safety regulations up, et cetera. And then they let me work there, which is really, really nice of them because, again, they have their own fair that feeds into ISIS, but they were really happy to help a kid from a completely different fair who's basically in a, in a way technically competition, right? So right. that's, that's another part of like scientific collaboration is that even if you have like six kids from your fair going to ISAF and six kids from another fair, fair, if the kid from that fair needs help, then you extend a hand, which is exactly what it is. So I'm really grateful to them mm. for that. Yeah, science knows no borders. That's so great that you could do that. And that, did you have to commute there? Because you mentioned it's oh, like yeah. an hour away. Yeah, that was that was the biggest obstacle I'd say is like keeping my head sane on the two hour drives. Wow. Was it at least a nice drive? I mean scenery you've been surrounded by? The scenery was fine. like the first half is just like the American interstate highways which are sometimes nice, sometimes just ugly concrete and that's <laughs> I got the latter. But then you start to go into a through a town and some mountains to get to the university. So it wasn't too bad, but uh, every day for like six months, it got a little boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I could imagine. But, you know, you've overcame that obstacle, even it was like counted in miles. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you made everything possible to have that, get that research going. It's great that you have the support from your dad, who I guess is working in the field of biology or microbiology related. So he's an environmental engineer. Oh, okay. But, um, the field is like so broad technically that like half of what he does is wastewater treatment and, and stuff like that. But he also has a little bit of a microbiology background. He doesn't do anything clinical, mm -hmm. but I kind of got interested in science from him actually. Uh, that's really So he also gave you that inspiration. That's cool. Exactly. And we've been talking about future possibilities with your research, but now I'm kind of curious, what is your ultimate dream in life? <laughs> My ultimate dream in life, actually, is, I mean, we could have two ends of the scientific dream would be, uh, I want to become a doctor, but, like, one who does both the clinical uh, practicing physician, but also, like, a researcher. So that's, like, my ultimate dream in the science world. And then my ultimate dream regular is to visit every country. Oh, you know, there are those videos, Guru just sets off, and they visit every country. So that would be yeah, so I, cool. Yeah. To have you do that and well related to the scientific aspect you would get the best of both worlds solving worldwide problems and actually applying the solutions in real life settings exactly so since you've uh, mentioned traveling i'm gonna switch up the order i was planning to go because you mentioned that traveling is a I guess, a kind of a passion of yours. So what has been your favorite place you visited and where do you wish to travel in the future? Ooh, that is a tough one. I couldn't honestly decide. I mean, I've been to Hungary before. I've been to really? a few European countries. And yeah, I was in Budapest for not too long, actually, just a few days. But it was, uh, it was a gorgeous city. And um, what we like to do is, uh, my dad, was, it's funny, my dad was actually um, on sabbatical in Europe for a year. So he decided to go to two European universities to kind of just uh, have a good time researching there because he got tired of being like the head researcher for a while. So he wanted to be under someone and learn new things. Mm -hmm. So what he did was he actually took his family, including me, along. So what we did was we spent six months in Holland and six months in Switzerland. And I went to schools in both. And it was, I think that was my most favorite experience was 
just being in like a Dutch school where most of the kids speak maybe three or four words of English and I speak absolutely no Dutch and we just, you know, kind of figure out <laughs> what to <laughs> communicate at the time. So that was probably one of my nicest experiences. Wow, that's so great that she could experience the European way of living. Could yeah. you identify some like odds that perhaps you don't have in the US or like some differences in terms of living in Europe? What was your experience um, like? So, first of all, the thing we noticed was that like the refrigerators, I don't know if this is a European thing or if it was just like a Dutch and or Swiss thing, was the refrigerators were like half the size of the refrigerators you get here in the average home in the USA. So what we figured out really quickly was that you don't go shopping like once every week, every two weeks, you kind of go almost every day and just pick up the essentials for what you need that day. So it decreases wastage. And um, that, that was something that we found really interesting. And uh, the public transportation in Europe was also, I think, way better than what I'm used to here in Utah. Ah. Uh. Well, the first one you mentioned, I think it's called micro-shopping, I'm not sure, but, but it's really true. And it, I think it doesn't only translate into the first size, but also the meal sizes. So I had the reverse experience because the meal sizes were huge in the US compared to what I usually have here. But yeah, public transportation, um, I think like perhaps it's related to the fact that almost um, everyone had owns a car and there is not such a big need for public transportation in the US. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And because I also live um, in the Mountain West area. So, you know, if you go to the East Coast in the USA, where the big cities like New York, you know, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. they're like a little more condensed, like, like most European cities would be. But once you get out West, and especially where I am, which is Utah, which is like, in the middle of nowhere almost then like everything is like four to five hours apart or like away by car so it's really difficult to build like a train line so that's yeah people are just like stick to the highways on your car that would like be an amusing part because of the mountains i guess if you yeah. if anyone uh, had that endeavor great to hear that you had the european experience and that you like budapest you know it feeds my hungarian pride <laughs> yeah yeah no we um we spent a week in the countryside in Hungary on a farm. So we were only in Budapest for two days about, but then we spent time on a farm. And I've got to say, that was like some of the most gorgeous countryside I've ever seen. Oh, really? Uh, which part of Hungary? Because I don't live in Budapest. I live in the countryside. Ooh, oh my God. I was, this was what, like four years ago. I'm sorry. I will get back to you on that. Like maybe later I'll go back, look at some photos to find a location. But okay. um, it was on the east side, I think. Oh, I live on the east side. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, it would be really fun if uh, we discovered that you actually went close to my area or where I live because there's like a really nice national park here too. But yeah, Hungary has many places to discover. Exactly. Back a little bit to the scientific aspect. Who are you most inspired by in your scientific endeavors? Oh, that's uh, so like the, the first easy answer would obviously be my father because he inspired me to get into science like I saw him so it was a funny thing like when my mom was doing was finishing her um, master's degree in art at the university my dad didn't know what to do with me so you kind of just take me to his lab okay. and I would just like sit in the chair and watch all the graduate students he had like you know pour their chemicals do their stuff blah 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 so uh -huh. I was like oh wow I want to do that so that kind of translated into an interest in 
science as a whole as I got older and figured out, you know, started to pursue passions. So like some people would have writing, some people have sports. I just like science as it is. And so that's that. And then another inspiration I think would be my brother. He's, he's younger than me. He's 12. But like what's inspiring to see is like the whole, you know, kids are really innocent type of thing. So like just watching him, he did his first science fair project this year. So just watching him like figure out what to do, kind of navigate through this new realm is most inspiring to see because like I was once there so it's interesting to see how someone I know so well how they deal with issues they face stuff like that oh that's so nice it seems like there is this legacy uh running in your family and um it's just so cool because uh what you just mentioned when of course we are younger it's just so vital to have those experiences when you're exposed to different fields and that you kind of navigate what your passion is and then as yeah. you grow older that passion it that passion remains the same but you know it's kind of a different thing because you follow it as an ambition so you're strategically planning what you're gonna do as a next step and it's just so great that your brother has someone older to look up to who can kind of show the way in yeah, the scientific yeah, world be a good mentor and i uh, like you said it i think it's i think what's interesting about like a, a passion in stem like science technology as as a whole is that it's one of those fields that incorporates almost everything because you need creativity you need you need communication skills you need to know how to write you need to know how to you know sometimes draw because when you're coming up with your lab design so if you have like an interest in stem i think that it's really easy to kind of transpose that into any other interest so like say uh, my brother for example if he decides that science just doesn't click he'll still have written up a few you know abstracts he'll still have the the project design mentality so if you found like writing as a new passion it would be easy for him to move into something like that because he already has a few of the skills so that's what i think um like a science and even science fair based approach really works is because even if kids later on decide that they just don't like it, it still helps them build skill sets for various things. Yes, absolutely. It just really touches so many areas, all the way from interpersonal skills through communication, setting up a poster. It's also graphics and design. So you yeah. re <laughs> really get the whole package. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received and would like to share with others? So it's going to be um, what my lab mentor at State University told me when I first did the microtire play assay and got back all kinds of weird data, which we later figured out was kind of consistent. And he told me that no data is bad data. Mm. So that I kind of took to heart because for, you know, at first I was like, this is not a full study. I'm literally proving basically that phages can half the time make things worse. So like who would want to... Who would want to award this project? Who would want to like look at this project and be like, wow, that's good science because it's kind of sad. So he told me that, no, it's sometimes it's better to know what not to do than to know what to do. So hmm. that that's kind of like some advice I've gotten that I can, you know, apply to different parts of my life as well, not just when I'm doing data collection. Yeah, that quote your prof mentioned should be written on a shirt. And then, yeah, have it in a quote. It's just so true because when 
someone, I think it's supposed to conducting research or like scientific experiments in the first few months, you kind of get discouraged when you don't get the results you desired or that you hoped yeah. for. But the thing is that even those negative results are paving the way for you to to move on to the next step and on to the, the next one because it can really open up new possibilities like how many yeah. groundbreaking research results have been born from the fact that it did not come together for the first time yeah it's kind of it's kind of almost an archetype now is that oh something doesn't go like penicillin i mean that that's the one that's still gets me is it was a complete accident so like yeah as long as you keep doing doing you're bound to come across something, or you're 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 gonna you're gonna contribute somehow to the collection of scientific knowledge we have, regardless of whether your project is a success or not. Because like mine, technically, from like the point I started to the point I ended, my project was an absolute failure because I found that the thing I wanted to make work doesn't work, or I mean it does, but sometimes it can't work. So it was technically a failure, but. What, what the new knowledge that we can kind of gather from things like this is really important. So yeah, to never get discouraged and always keep moving, even when things seem really messed up, I guess is the main, like broader piece of advice you can get. And what I've been just reminded, it's not so scientific related, but as you've just said, science can be applied in so many fields of life. Like when we have failures in our personal life, we feel like the whole world is, you know, crushing down upon us. But the thing is that that kind of failure can prepare you for something new and something you did not expect. So looking back, that failure was a precursor of what's happening in your life at the moment. Exactly. It's all, it's all basically like, it all makes you... Not harder, I would say. That's not the correct word, but it makes you stronger in terms of just, like, your mentality. So something I could quote is, like, um, I'm sure you've heard of the celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay. So, yeah. like, famous English chef, right? I was watching, like, an interview that someone did with him, and he was talking about the time when he was barely, like, 20, 21, and he was working in a French kitchen, and he didn't speak much French at all, and that particular kitchen was really, really aggressive. Like, he would get stuff thrown at him, he would always be yelled at. So it was, like a horrible experience for your mentality but what he said is he credits that experience to helping him become you know strong mentally and that's how he's been able to deal with like so many things that come your way when you're a celebrity right so mm. i would also say scientific failure and for example if you have if in the future one of you one of the people who listens to this would go to ISIS and then one of their like six judges just hates their project for whatever reason through no fault of their own or whatever and that kind of you know makes them feel bad about it which can sometimes happen you have to like just credit that experience as a learning point of just a lesson and just move forward from there instead of becoming discouraged i really like the gordon ramsay metaphor what you implemented there but it's just really crucial to to look at those at the moment you see them as negative experiences but you always have the choice whether you think of them as things that break you or shape you into yeah. um, a better version of yourself and there is always an opportunity to grow that's i think it's part of human nature to you know level up your game and then move on to, to the next endeavor but it's it's such a valuable advice which you've been sharing I'm going to move into a lighter field, but I know that traveling is also a passion of yours, but I'm interested, how do you like to spend your free time in general? Ooh. So, I mean, lots of things, actually. I mean, the easiest thing would be if I was the richest person in the world, then I would obviously just be like booking flights everywhere, wandering around, 
Mm-hmm. But um, when I have free time, just me, and it's not like it's not like a vacation or something, then I like to sometimes, you know, either read a book. I used to do that a lot. I don't really do that anymore, and I kind of have to get back into it. I'm like a fan of mystery stuff like that. Oh, and like, I also like video games, conspiracy so, theories, like or not that kind of mystery. <laughs> So, like, one of my favorite uh, mystery books would be And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. So, that kind of mystery I really like. But, okay, I'm not going to lie. Conspiracy theories are also kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember um, the leaflet or the paper they've been distributing that the earth is flat at Intel? Oh, Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. That was <laughs> that was an event. Um, so, I don't know how it's happening in Europe, but, like, lately in the USA, the... Um, anti-vaccination movement has been getting some ground and has been getting some traction so that's that's a big stressor for someone like myself who's interested in microbiology like why are people still thinking that i don't know it's such an outdated concept like if we just move back to the middle ages and you know yeah uh, to start people in ice water and hope everything's okay yeah exactly there are those i i'm not sure about the name but um those videos created by jubilee when you have the common grounds and then they bring people together from two entirely different um yeah exactly um, and then they ask them questions and then yeah they, like say where you stand on it yeah and one was an anti-vaccination and then and pro-vaccination and it was just really well let's just say interesting to hear their perspectives yeah exactly i watched i think i watched that one too and i was like okay, I, as a human being, have to respect their opinion, and then I, as a human being with common sense, have to completely disagree. Yeah. And also, uh, as someone who is um, deeply invested in microbiology, you have to disagree. Yeah, I have to angrily disagree with that, then, because I, I listen, and it was just... They weren't really saying anything. It was all almost fluffy. It was just, like, fluff talk. It was. It, it didn't make much sense. It. It wasn't coherent. It, they didn't have an argument. They were just like, essentially, I don't want to vaccinate my kids because it's bad. Even if we're talking about the ethical aspect, you are still playing a Russian roulette with life. Yeah, exactly. And we know. I. I have to like respect the, the the ethical part is the only part that I can you know, just like as a human being with any sort of decency, I guess, sort of acknowledge that okay, that is one valid not even but like okay let's just use the word valid sort of like argument in Mm -hmm. your list of blah but like even that one as you said it's like a trade-off like would you rather do that or would you rather risk your kid you know getting grossly sick getting other children sick like it's just for you know just think of it as the greater good like just just stick like i think it was two embryos or something that most vaccines are now derived from i'm not sure Mm-hmm. But, like, one anti-vaccinated, I mean, unvaccinated child could get so many others sick. So, it's just, like, a trade-off, basically. Yes, exactly. I totally agree. I totally agree. And But I really like the show because it just so shows different perspectives. And I yeah. like learning about how other people think, even though if I don't necessarily agree with them. But yeah. it's just the openness that you observe different ideas. And, of course, it boils down to an individual, how they translate it in themselves. Yeah. But it's it's great to widen your perspective. Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's good because it's – I always – to um, learn how the other side thinks, I guess, is that they're 
you're always gonna humans are always like gonna have things that they're gonna divide themselves on no matter what it's just, it's just in our nature i'd say so but like if you can just know where the other person is coming from like what shapes their perspective on an issue then you can deal with differences much better rather than just like bomb each other with facts that may or may not be true yes Absolutely. Well, the next game we're gonna play is not Common Ground, but it's called This or That game section. So you're gonna choose either or. The first one is a bit of sports related. So hockey or football? Just making sure football, yeah. So soccer, the American football, right? football, yeah. Oh, American football, okay. No, sorry. I just sometimes get confused because, you know, it's reverse in, in uh, Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, wait, are we talking about the one you throw or the one you kick? <laughs> the, uh, the one you throw. Okay, I would choose American football over hockey. Okay, and um, what team do you cheer on? Uh, in American football, mm -hmm. I mean, we have college-level teams, and then we also have the uh, football uh, NFL, the NFL mm -hmm. National League. So uh, the, University, the University of Utah, which is where I'm going, we have a pretty decent um, college-level football team, so I definitely cheer them on. And then for the NFL... Basically, anyone who has an underdog story linked to them. <laughs> so it changes every year. <laughs> okay, that's cool. I actually haven't really been exposed to the American football. My One of my friends introduced me to that. So I actually tried to watch... I think it was... Oh my. Um, it was the Eagles against the Patriots game this, this yeah, February. Yeah. And I tried to tune into that one. It was really funny because I couldn't find it anywhere online. And I was so pissed because I really wanted to watch that game. And the next day, my friends were telling that they had the game at almost every cinema in my town. And also, it was on TV. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah I, I couldn't watch that one. Did you ever get a chance to like watch a little bit of American football? live or at least like replays or something well i can see just the highlights the next one we had just dance at uh intel so that's why the next one is just dance or karaoke <laughs> i suck at both but i probably suck more at karaoke so just dance okay just dance that's cool coffee or tea oh, oh my god okay uh tea i'd say tea because Uh, Indians are notorious for drinking like a particular type of tea. Like we wake up at four and then watch a cricket match while drinking tea. So, tea. oh, that's a tradition then. I didn't know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Uh, would you travel by plane or boat? Mm, depends on the destination. I mean, most of the places that I would want to go in the beginning, boat would make the journey a lot more difficult. But like one of my friends went on a cruise to Antarctica last year, so that was really interesting. I don't think you could get the same experience by plane, so I would have to say it just depends on the destination. Wow, yeah, that's um, such a cool journey too. Gonna go to Antarctica. Yeah, once in a lifetime experience. And yeah. the the fifth one is uh, kind of ordinary, but are you a dog or cat person? Oh, dog person all the way, no, no question. Um, I have three dogs, so... I can feel oh, that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, dog, dogs are uh, best friends for life, for sure. I just feel like dogs, you know, it's easier. I mean, I've never had a cat. I had a dog for a brief period of time. So it's just it's just easier to sort of like, and I'm basing this off of like when I see other people's dogs and cats, the, the dogs are immediately way more friendlier on average. So it's easier to bond with them as opposed to a cat. I just kind of sits there. I have cats, but um, they have this 
super messy or uh, (laughs) the kind of feeling that the dog wants to serve you and the the cat wants to be served. So I think that's the major difference. So it appeals to our our personal, you know, egoistic sort of humanity, something that we inherently all have, I guess. Yeah, that could be translated into that. But it's also great to give back their love. Have their friendship. Now, as a closing question, I ask this one from every guest because I just love hearing all of your perspectives and how you think about this subject. But the question is, what does science mean to you? Mm. Science means... There's a, there's a lot of places you could say science. You could say discovery. You could say creativity. But I think at, the, at its root, uh, science is just questioning. Mm. Is because like the origin, the origin of science was asking questions, I'd say, you know, and that's still what it is, like, people started investigating things, because they were curious to know how it got there, what it is, you know, why it's there, stuff like that, so just questioning in general is the basis of science, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely, because that's the kind of curious nature we should all keep, and just asking new questions, you know, when when a kid is, like, two or three years old, and they just keep constantly asking why, and I think it's just so crucial not to lose that spirit of, of questioning exactly. things because that's how you will have just an exponential curve in terms of growing and learning. So I think it wrapped it up really great and, and beautifully. The whole message of what science means to us and you definitely dropped the stem in this episode. Congratulations again on all of your achievements and I wish you the best in your future endeavors and it was great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and congratulations to you too. And, uh, you know, I hope our paths cross in the future, which they may, because science is, like we said, universal. Yes, thank you so much. You can find us on Instagram at Drabdistan Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and make sure to stay tuned for the next one.